Well, it is a pleasure to be able to gather and to worship together here on this first day of Passion Week or, or Holy Week, uh, a time when Christians around the world uh, remember, uh, recognize, and, and celebrate God's gift to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the time of year uh, that uh, is uh, where more people are attuned, at least to the message of the very reason for which Jesus came. And this day, Palm Sunday, uh, the day that we recognize, that we celebrate with the waving of palms, at least with children, waving palms both in worship and often in the car ride on the way home. So I just imagine just now and you know throughout the next hour, all the people trying to drive and saying, put that away. Anyway, just, uh, you know, that's uh, maybe not be worshipful, but that's in my head. Um, uh, but this morning, and it's not just the children, but uh, pastors who... Uh, rehearse and rehash the events of, of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, what I want us to see is the purpose for which he has come, as it is clearly revealed to us in uh, the narratives of, uh, of the Gospels uh, recounting that triumphal entry. Uh, if you will open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at Luke's account. Uh, just as some, a suggestion for those this afternoon that are inclined to do so, it's worthwhile to look at all of the gospel accounts. Uh, they have some different details that all tell the same story. And so whether you uh, go back and, and read, uh, whether it's uh, in Matthew 21 or Mark 11 or John 12 or the passage we look at this morning, all of us look at, all of them look at this uh, triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday, uh, from a different perspective, giving us uh, understanding and appreciation for what God has done in Christ. Our passage this morning, we'll pick up in reading in verse 28. We'll read through verse 44 this morning. Hear the word of our God. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, uh, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the, Almighty, uh, for the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, 
and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we do in celebration and with thanksgiving. For once again, we are reminded of your love for the world and your gift to the world in the person of Jesus Christ, who came not merely as an example, but to be a redeemer, to be the savior, the one that was promised. We pray this morning that as we consider this familiar story, familiar to many of us, that we would not be lost and wrapped up in the sentimentality of it, but that we would see very clearly uh, the point that led you to record this in all four of your Gospels, that we may know Jesus, we may know ourselves through the lens uh, of Jesus, and that we may have our lives shaped and directed for Je by Jesus, that we may live to your glory and find our joy in that. Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive as we consider this your holy word. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how people would respond. And he knew what the consequences would be for his actions. And yet he did it anyway. For months now, after he would teach in a powerful way or perform a, a, a miracle, his disciples and those who were witnesses singing his praises would want to elevate him. And each time he would say, it's not my time. Even only a few days before, after he had fed the multitudes with very meager resources, the people were impressed and thought, We'd like to have somebody in charge over us who can provide, you know, free food out of almost nothing, uh, providing for all of our needs. And the passages tell us that they wanted him to be their king. And Jesus said at that point, it's not my time. No, but they were told by the passage were so insistent upon it that they were going to make him king by force. His response was to send them packing and to walk away because it was not yet his time. But now with this dramatic and really somewhat in-your-face exhibition, Jesus, in the midst of this parade of Passover people, unmistakably presents himself as the promised Messiah King. Just consider the symbolism of the things that were taking place uh, that we see on these pages. The people that were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, something that comes straight out of Psalm 118, written by King David. It was a psalm that was very well known to people. It was looking forward to the promised king, but it was also a celebration of each king as they came, because each new king brings a, a measure of hope. There had been a great king in Israel, David, the one who wrote this particular psalm, and the kingdom flourished under him, though he himself had significant flaws and the kingdom had its own issues at the time. And the, yet there was this promise of, of a greater David, one who would come in the line of David. And yet after David's time, each of the other kings that took his place 
pretty much every one of them was a dud, leaving people to long for the promised king. And the people were singing this and declaring, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing that Jesus was the one who was sent to be the king. Think about the laying on the cloaks on, on the ground before him as he was riding in to town on the donkey. Now, as I read this, it makes sense that they would put the cloaks on the donkey before he sits down on it. If you ever ridden a horse or anything, you know, those things are kind of sweaty and nasty, especially, in, you know, in the heat. And so you don't want all the hair and everything else. So they put the cloaks on him. That part makes sense. But they were not just doing that. After they had put the cloaks on the back of the donkey and put Jesus on, the, on top of the cloaks, then they began laying their cloaks, which is their coats and blankets and other things. They were laying them down in front of the donkey for the donkey to walk on. And this was an ancient tradition uh, among the Jewish people that was to give honor to a king, laying themselves symbolically before him, saying that we are subject to you. Think about the palm branches, not mentioned in this particular passage, but in all three of the other accounts. Palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. They pointed to victory and to triumph and therefore to royalty. And so they were associated with the promise of the king. And so they were laying those down on the ground as he came as well. And so the cloaks and the palm branches as Jesus comes riding in on the donkey and even the donkey itself. So often we, we think of that as just the, the mere humility, and, and that certainly is, is true, and we'll maybe talk about that in a moment. But in an unmistakable way, what Jesus was doing when he commissioned them to go and to get the donkey, and not even just a donkey, but the foal of a donkey, a, a colt that no one has ever sat on before. He was fulfilling a prophecy. He was fulfilling uh, the prophecy from uh, Zechariah 9.9, which declares this, uh, anticipating the coming king. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a prophecy of how the promised king would enter into the lives of how he would take over and begin his reign. And Jesus was very well aware of this. He was very intentional. As he dramatically displayed the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, receiving the adoration, the adulation, the worship, and the signs that belong to uh, the coming king. I mean, it was no coincidence that after we're told throughout all the Gospels, for three years, Jesus walked everywhere he went. And now as he's about to come into this coronation and he's at the top of the Mount of Olives and going to go downhill into the city of Jerusalem, he says, no, nah, I think I'm going to ride now. He was very definitely claiming and representing himself as the one who was the promised king. The people responded to it. We're told that the multitude of his disciples, they were rejoicing and they were celebrating. And that's why they were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so for the word disciples there, when we're talking about the multitude, it's all of the people who were excited and were uh, and been 
or hopeful that somehow this guy would come in and he would bring the peace and restore justice the way that it was supposed to be. Though few, if any, had any real understanding as to what this implied, how this would take place, and what the kingdom would truly be like when God's reign took hold over the lives once again. His immediate disciples, the, the 12 that had walked with him, they were ecstatic because they were looking around and seeing all the people celebrating. This is what they had invested in. This is what they were waiting for. They poured themselves in. They had learned and, and had been blessed and had benefited from it. But they were waiting this time where he would ascend and he would be the king and he would restore Israel to its rightful place uh, and that there would be power and he would govern in righteousness and in justice. And they were with him all along. They would be with him when he reigns. This is what they were looking forward to. And so they were drinking everything in as people were shouting and the prophecies were being fulfilled. The Pharisees, not so much. They were taking everything in. I don't think there was necessarily a monolithic uh, reaction to it. But as they saw Jesus coming in and they put together these pieces as to not only what he seemed to be declaring about himself, but the response of the crowds, we're, we're told some of the Pharisees came up to him and said, teacher, quiet your disciples. In other words, tell people to hush up. They, maybe more than anybody else, were picking up on what Jesus was declaring. He was, he was coming and presenting himself as the king in the fulfillment of these prophecies and receiving all of this adoration and worship. And recognizing that only God was worthy of worship. Only the Messiah should receive this and, and come in this way. And them not believing that he was the Messiah, they come and say, understandably, tell them to hush. This is inappropriate. Jesus' response, well, even if I told them to hush, and even if they hushed up, then the stones would cry out, which itself would be a testimony. Because the Psalms tell us that even the, 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 the stones and the, and the trees, they will declare the praises of our God, which is a reminder or it was a foretaste of that when God's reign is, uh, is fully uh, run, when creation is responding to God as it should, everything, everything relates and gives thanks for the presence of God. And Jesus was the one who had come to make all things right, to restore the creation for the way that it was supposed to be. Jesus unashamedly, unequivocally, was coming in and presenting himself to be the promised Messiah King. And such a presentation demands a response. The Pharisees did respond in their discomfort, in their assessment of the situation. They knew that they only had a few options. As more than one pithy Bible teacher has, has stated, they knew the only options before them was to acknowledge him as the rightful king, to kill him as just another revolutionary imposter, but the one thing that wasn't uh, available to them was to do nothing. They could, they could honor him. They could kill him. But they cannot ignore him. They cannot do nothing. 
but it's not only the people that were there that day. It's not only the Pharisees and those who were cheering Jesus who need to see how Jesus was dramatically presenting himself and then respond to his presenting himself to be the promised king. Every one of us who is here today, everyone on earth needs to respond to how Jesus presented himself and the options that were available to the Pharisees are the same options that you and I have before us as well. We can either recognize him as the rightful king and therefore give him our lives, or we reject him as yet another fraud, a, a revolutionary imposter. But the one thing that we cannot do, the one thing that is not available to us is to do nothing. When we see this presented to us, we have to respond. The question is, how are we to respond? Will we recognize him as a king, as the king, or will we reject him as an imposter? Now, it may be that most of us don't think much about Jesus as king. I mean, it's included in our songs, and we know that the title is there. But for us, particularly as Americans, kings, it doesn't resonate with us like it might in other places in the world, and certainly at that point in time. To us, kings are disposable. They're there for our entertainment. They may even be dangerous, but they are not something that we as a culture particularly embrace. Maybe in our DNA. So we looked at, at history and Thomas Paine said, a thirst for power is the natural disease of the monarchy. And it kind of sums up the attitude that we have. One of the reasons we don't have a king. We had a king, we rejected that king, we didn't want any other king. Why? Because almost every example of kingship throughout the world, the king leads to tyranny. They have power, they want more power. They use the power they have to get more power. Once they get more power, then they want your money. Then they want everything else. And sometimes they fulfill some of the promises. Oftentimes they don't. But almost inevitably, the ones who are reigning, the ones who become king, it becomes primarily about them and not about the people that are, 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 that are subject to them. And so as a people, as a nation, we've kind of, we've, we've developed a, a kind of a, you know, an antipathy for this whole idea of the monarchy. Now, of course, we have uh, some interest in that. You know, among us, I don't doubt that we have some of our Anglophiles, those of you who are addicted to Downton Abbey, and it's just, you know, you've uh, subscribed to BritBox, and you read about and watch the royal family, but let's get real. The royal family that we watch that is in England today hardly inspires all. They're just a highly paid reality TV presentation, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, they make us feel better about ourselves because we can look at them and say, they're royalty and I'm better than that. I mean, so the idea of, of king doesn't really strike many of us. And even when we do use king, where's, where's kings used in our? We have homecoming queen, uh, kings and queens and, home, and you know prom kings and queens. They're going to get replaced. And we elect them. We vote for them if we like them. And we, can, you know, we can build them up. We can take them out. We have you know, Elvis Presley, king of rock and roll. Michael Jackson, king of pop. They can be replaced if we, like, if we decide we don't like them anymore. And so for us, a king is a title that we throw out. Not somebody that we bow down to. And yet to the people who were there that day, 
to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to Jesus himself. The idea of a king is not somebody that is there for our amusement, but is somebody who is there for our rule. And we don't necessarily think of Jesus that way. We think of him as you know, an example who taught us how to live, as the son of God, as the one who was incarnated, God who became flesh, as the one who is our, our savior. All of these things are, are absolutely true. But I'm not sure that we think so much of him as the king. But Jesus' claim that was leading him to the cross is that he is the true and the promised king. And if this is true of him, then he is worthy of all allegiance, all homage, and all obedience. Now, it may be helpful for us to recognize that Jesus is a different kind of king. So all the reasons we might be hesitant about embracing a king, we need to see what this king is really like. Now, if he is truly God who's come in the flesh, if he is truly the promised Messiah, it really doesn't matter what he's like because he is God and he's worthy of everything. But it makes it a little bit easier when we recognize the character that is revealed throughout the scriptures. But even as we consider this particular passage of what kind of king Jesus is. Theologian John Stott says this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus did not come to us on a war horse. He will not use force to gain entry into our lives. He comes in humility and gentleness. He comes in suffering and love because he is the king, but he is the king of peace. And so this passage before us as Jesus is coming in with all of the evidence, all of the prophecies being fulfilled, all of the, the things that are pointing to him where he is presenting himself as the king, it demands our response. So whether we believe or whether we will reject, but we also need to consider the, the nature of this king as he is coming. And we see it not only just in Stott who stated, but in, in the passage that's before us. Because we see something that is really startling, if you think about it, when we see how this passage unfolds. With all the pomp and ceremony and Jesus coming down, he's making his way down. And as I understand, it's coming down from the Mount of Olives. Uh, you know, there's kind of like a bend and then there gets to be a point you're still up in the hill, but you're now overlooking uh, the, the Jerusalem. And, and what's being described here is when he got to that point, when he got to the point where you're still able to see, have a great view of the city uh, as he's coming down the mountain and he sees the city that's before him, he begins to weep. Now, our natural instinct might be to think, well, he's thinking about what the week is going to unfold. He knows what's going on. Now is the time. He knew why he'd come. He'd come to die. You know, if I had on my agenda this week, the week that Jesus had that week, you better believe I'd be blubbering. But that's not what was motivating him. And also the word weep, I think, might be a little bit weak here for us because, you know, we tend to think of the weeping, okay, maybe some tears and, you know, just kind of trying to collect himself. You know, but the but the New Testament scholars uh, and the linguists are saying no. The, the the implication here is that he began bawling. He couldn't control himself. He was overcome with sadness as he's looking over the city. 
And even as we read the reason, as he was able to collect himself and, and to pray, how loud, we, we don't know. We see the reason that he's weeping is not because of the suffering he is going to experience, but because of the hearts of the people that made his suffering necessary in the first place. I mean, consider what it is that he says. He drew near, in verse 31, he drew near the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Now they're hidden from your eyes. And then he talks about what's going to happen in terms of Jerusalem. They're going to be overwhelmed, which is a, a historic reality. And it's also a metaphorical reality for every one of our lives. Because the sin hems us in in every direction. We are caught. We can't run. We can't escape. We can't do anything. And eventually sin will take every one of us down, leaving nothing standing if we were to try to fight sin on our own. Our enemy, our enemies are against us, just as the Roman and other armies would be against the Jewish people, against Jerusalem. And it makes the heart of God, the Messiah, King, it breaks it. It leads him to weep. That is the love that he has for the people who he also knows will reject him in only a matter of hours. We see the gentleness. We see the humility. The humility is evident in the fact that he's riding the donkey. The disciples, no doubt, when they, he says he's going to ride, they knew that he would ride in, but they were expecting this warrior king to come in, and he says, go get a baby donkey. They may have been almost somewhat embarrassed. Couldn't help but thinking about stories that Carolyn talks about when she was dropped off at high school, at least her early days in high school, and her dad's old, I think it was an old Ford Pinto. She would make him park somewhere out of sight um, because it was, you know, she was embarrassed as a high school student. I, I assume the disciples felt somewhat like that. This, you're riding in on this little donkey. And now they may have also recognized that it was the prophecy was fulfilled, but it just, there's nothing majestic about a fully grown man in a baby donkey um, walking in. We, we see the humility there, but we see even more in the heart that he has for people who, who will despise him, who will reject him. He's weeping over their brokenness, even though he's the one who is going to suffer the consequences for it. And we see that it is, not, it is said that he comes not just in humility and gentleness, but he comes in suffering and love because he's riding on the dying. Because he knows that you need it, that I need it, that every person that was there in the crowd needs it because we cannot save ourselves. Even in our best efforts, we buy some time and ultimately find that we plunge ourselves even more deeply into our brokenness. And so Jesus is presenting himself as a king, but throughout the scriptures, throughout his time on earth, throughout even in this, this brief ride, he's reminding us that he's a different kind of king. But nevertheless, he is a king. Because he's presenting himself to be a king, it demands a response from you and from me. As Christians, we believe that he is the God's anointed king. The Lord said, I have appointed my king, and he is already reigning in Zion. The question is whether we would recognize him. And if we recognize him, how do we respond? See, one doesn't dabble with the king. 
One doesn't say, I recognize you as the king, and so I'll say some nice things about you, and I'll give you some of my time and my talent when it's not inconvenient. I'll give you some of my wealth, some of my resources, and you know, if you say something that I like, then I'll do it, but if I, I'll reserve the right to, you know, that's not the way you respond to a king. Whether you give him allegiance, homage, and obedience, or you receive none of the benefits of their reign. See, many of us want to see Jesus as the Savior, and he absolutely is a Savior, but what we need to recognize is the totality of his message is this, is I'm happy to be your Savior, but you will not experience the joy of the salvation. You will not experience the benefit of that apart from my reign. See, in order for you to experience the freedom and to experience the joy, that which you think that you want, that's what you know that you need, requires that you die to the reign of sin and death and you live for and live to and live in the reign of righteousness and peace. Either way, one is going to reign. The question is, which one? In the person of Jesus, he makes it possible through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection that we who believe can be saved, and yet there is no saving apart from resting in him, trusting him, and walking in his ways. Otherwise, we're giving lip service in one way, but we're continuing to live under the reign of sin and death. It is only when we say, Jesus, you are the king. I will not only praise you and worship you, but I will obey you and I will live in the way that you instruct me to live. It's only then that we experience the freedom, the peace, the joy that we all so desperately long for. And so those picture of Jesus riding, in, riding on to die presents an opportunity and a challenge for every one of us here today. How do we respond? Jesus is the king. But the question is, is he your king? And is he my king? He's king nevertheless. But the benefits come only to those who recognize, acknowledge, and bow to him as that king. May God give us grace to respond wisely. Father, we give thanks to you for this word, for the multi-dimensions in which we see this account. I pray that as we come today, that we who already believe would be renewed both in our faith and in our commitment. We pray for others who are exploring that you would grant them wisdom and discernment to evaluate the claims, the evidence that goes with it. That they may decide who will rule their lives. As for me and my house, As for this house, a grace covenant, we will serve the Lord Jesus. To you, O oh God, be all praise and honor and glory. Amen.